Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and in this episode, I wanted to play an audio that I had originally released as a podcast about six or, I don't know, seven years ago, I don't know, something like that. And it was on Daniel chapter 9, and it was a verse-by-verse study. It was part of the series I was doing on Daniel, which eventually became the book, uh, the commentary that I wrote on Daniel. And the other day, somebody had, had, had mentioned this to me, this, this what I had written in Daniel 9. And it's funny because I had written that so long ago, and in a lot of ways I just had forgotten, because Daniel's an extremely complicated book, and I, you have to be really in the zone when you're, when you're learning all this stuff. And a lot of that stuff I just sort of kind of forgot. Like the other day I was actually wondering something about Daniel 8, and I was like, well, what, what is my take on Daniel 8? Well, let's see what I wrote, and then... You know, I make some points, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. Uh, you know, it's almost like reading somebody else's it's writings. It's weird. But uh, with Daniel 9, it was it really hit me when I was reading this that this was uh, important, and it was a different take on Daniel 9 than you probably have heard before. You, maybe Charles Cooper has a similar take on it, and that's where I say I got it from him. I do feel like I expanded on it and some other things, but point is that it's, I'm not the only one that believes it, but it is probably something you've never heard before. The reason I want to make this point is because usually when somebody's doing that, they're doing it because they want some other thing to happen. You know, the, the, they need to change this in order to make some other theory they have over here make sense. That's not what's going on. In fact, I can't think of anything this helps or hurts, this alternate take on, on Daniel 9. Um, the only thing I... I do think it can help, though, in terms of identifying the beginning of the 70th week. I think it, I think it gives that into some, some more focus uh, if this take is true and helps us, again, become better watchmen. And I mean, there are some things that I feel like you lose, and all that's explained in the audio. Uh, but, uh, but I thought I, I wanted to play this, especially because when I tried to go look for this audio, this whole thing had been sort of wiped from the Internet. It wasn't uh, the, the, anybody's fault but mine. But uh, for whatever reason, it got on the server that eventually got hacked and, you know, it got lost. And it wasn't, and I just literally dug it up from an old hard drive and I wanted to put it back on the internet and uh, maybe I'll do something with it later. I don't know, make a video on it or something. You can find a clean edited version of it on, in my book, the Daniel, a commentary. Uh, but I also will link in here a, just a clear section of this a, a section of that book, which is just the words that's going to be spoken in this uh, sort of quasi-audio book here. So, all right, so without any further ado, here is Daniel chapter 9, part 2. I think I called it uh, the story of four temples, two down, two to go. Daniel 9, 20 and 21 say, now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. First this phrase, now while I was speaking and praying. Daniel's great prayer is interrupted by Gabriel. This is interesting because, as we will see, the answer to Daniel's prayer that Gabriel gives concerns something Daniel asked for only at the end of that prayer. In other words, God knew what Daniel was going to pray before he prayed it, and God had dispatched his divine answer before Daniel actually made that specific request. 
This reminds us of Matthew 6, verse 8, which states, For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. However, it also tells us that God was waiting for Daniel to start the prayer, as we see in verse 23, which says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come. I think one lesson from this is that though God does know what you need, He still wants you to ask for it in prayer. Sometimes we can make the error of thinking that God knows that we need such and such a thing, so he will just do it for us. But we forget that our petitions and prayers are what scripture tells us moves the hand of God, and in particular, prayers of the whole heart, like we see with Daniel's. Next we have this phrase, for the holy mountain of my God. This is how Daniel sums up what his entire prayer was about. He refers to Jerusalem and the area around the temple by using this phrase, holy mountain of my God. This is interesting because this is yet another occasion where we see what Daniel considered his prayer to be about. That is to say, Jerusalem and the temple. Not even the people are mentioned here, just the temple area, though the people are mentioned in verse 24. But the holy mountain is singled out here by Daniel as the main thing he was praying about. A quick look at the request portion of this prayer reveals the fact that the city and the temple were at the center of Daniel's prayer. Daniel 9.17 says, now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. This is important to keep in mind as we progress. There are many errors that can come by not realizing that Daniel's prayer and the answer to his prayer were very temple-centric. Next, this phrase, the man Gabriel. Daniel calls Gabriel a man because he appears in human form. We see back in chapter 8 where Gabriel first appeared to Daniel, which is what is meant by the phrase, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, that Gabriel had only the, quote, appearance of a man. Also, when we see Gabriel in the New Testament, we are there told explicitly that he was an angel. Luke 1, 19 says, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Next we have this phrase, being caused to fly swiftly, referring to Gabriel. This would be one of the few places in the Bible where we are told that angels fly. Stephen Miller, in his New American Commentary, thinks that it is possible that this is supposed to be written in my extreme weariness, such as the New American Standard has it, and further, that it refers to Daniel, not the angel. The example is, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Miller defends this view this way, quote, The Hebrew supports the reading in extreme weariness. A conjectural Hebrew verb is necessary to produce in swift flight. Some angels, i.e. cherubs and seraphs, it is true, are portrayed in Scripture as having wings and flying. Exodus 25.20, Isaiah 6.2, Ezekiel 1, 6, 11, 19, and 24. But Golden Gate observes that scripture does not indicate that ordinary angels have wings, but appear rather in human form. The text states specifically that Gabriel appeared in the form of a, quote, man, and men do not have wings. Although the idea of Gabriel flying swiftly to bring an urgent message to Daniel would suit the context, Daniel's utter exhaustion after a prolonged period of fasting and prayer fits the situation even better. And he cites Daniel 9, verse 3, and Daniel 10, 2, and 8. Though I'm not sure about the grammatical point that Miller makes here, I can say that this is the only time in Scripture that this Hebrew word is translated fly or anything like it. Every other time it has to do with faintness or weariness, 
which in my opinion gives more weight to the New American Standard translation here. Daniel 9, 22 and 23 say, And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. First this phrase, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. It's interesting that Daniel didn't really ask to understand anything about the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple. He wanted something done about it. And indeed, as we will see, his request for something to be done about the temple was also granted. But God also gives Daniel understanding about it. This is perhaps because the situation was not as simple as Daniel probably wanted it to be, and God wanted Daniel and us to understand the details of this complex matter. Daniel will learn in the following revelation that indeed the temple and city will be rebuilt again, but he also learns it will be destroyed again, and for similar reasons as the first time. Then he learns it will be rebuilt once more, and yes, destroyed once more, all before a final, more permanent one will be consecrated. It would have probably been bittersweet news for Daniel, who finds out here that although the wheels are going to be put in motion for the temple's reconstruction, something he would have loved to hear, this new temple's eventual demise was also foretold. Sometimes God wants to give us understanding of why something bad happens in our lives, rather than stopping that bad thing from happening altogether. Next we have this phrase, For you are greatly beloved. Commentators have long noted the interesting connection between Daniel and the Apostle John in this regard. This idea of being greatly loved, or in John's case, the disciple who Jesus loved, could be the reason that both Daniel and John are given the great apocalyptic revelations in the Bible. Is there a connection to this love and the giving of these great apocalyptic revelations to them? I'm not sure we can be sure from the text, but it is interesting enough to note. Next, this phrase, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. We are about to consider one of the most difficult and disputed sections in all of Scripture. And I will be taking a position that is probably like nothing you have heard before. I'll be drawing heavily from Charles Cooper's book, God's Elect in the Great Tribulation, although I will be expanding on many points he makes and slightly modifying others. I want to encourage everyone to test the things I will say and understand that I'm not dogmatic about the interpretation that I'm about to present, though I do firmly believe it to be the correct one. It should also be said that although I'm about to put forward a different view than one commonly believed, I am not doing it for theological reasons. If you examine the many different interpretations of this passage from the Bible commentators, you will see that the reason people come up with different explanations for it is mainly because of their underlying theologies that they bring to the text. For example, if you're an amillennialist or some version of a preterist, believing that all or mostly all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD, you must see this text very differently than a futurist who believes that many of the prophecies in the Bible have not come to pass yet. These particular presuppositions are the main reasons people differ on this text. They often bring these presuppositions fully formed to the text and make it say what they have already determined it should say. There is almost no other text where you can determine a person's underlying denominational theology by their interpretation of it as with this one. On this point, I think my interpretation gains some validity. I have no problem theologically with this text being a prophecy of Jesus' entering into the gates of Jerusalem, or his baptism, or death, or many similar views that are proposed by futurists. My overall theology would not change one single slight bit if that were really what this text were about. So I'm not taking a different position on this so that my theology will fit. 
I am taking a different position because I think the text and context demands it, and I hope to demonstrate to you that, at the very least, there is another very logical interpretation of this text that is not often articulated. Believe me, I would have much rather blown through this chapter quickly with a few quotes from Sir Robert Anderson's A Coming Prince and moved on to the next chapters which I find absolutely fascinating, rather than spending about two months in study and writing almost 19,000 words on a passage that really doesn't affect my theological bottom line, but the mere fact that I believe that the interpretation I'm going to present is correct demands the extra time spent. So let's begin. Daniel 9.24 Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. First, let's look at this phrase, 70 weeks. The word weeks here loosely translates to sevens. A good analogy would be our English word for dozens, except instead of 12, it is seven. Seventy sets of sevens have been determined. Scholars understand this to be speaking of 70 sets of seven years. In other words, 490 years. This is so universally agreed upon to be speaking of 490 years by scholars of all denominations and positions that I will not go into too much detail as to why, but it should be noted that there are some scholars who choose to see this 70 sets of seven years as indefinite periods of time. However, if we just consider this chapter, we see, for example, that Daniel was reading Jeremiah, who prophesied of a specific 70-year period, which was taken literally by Daniel and fulfilled literally in history. In addition, the 70 years of exile was also based on a literal 490-year neglect by Israel of the land Sabbath law. And this is just one of many reasons that the literal view of this time period enjoys the vast majority of support from scholars. Next, the phrase, for your people and for your holy city. These 70 weeks are determined for the holy people and the holy city. This is yet another reiteration of the focus of this prophecy. It will concern Jerusalem. If we review some of the phrases in the next three verses which constitute this prophecy, I think it will be clear that indeed the holy city is in view throughout. Verse 25 says, quote, The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Clearly this is referring to Jerusalem. Verse 26 says, The prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Again, information about the city and the temple is in view. Verse 27, the final verse, contains the phrase, quote, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, referring to the temple sacrifices. No matter what your interpretation of this verse is, the fact that it is referring to something at the temple ending, i.e. sacrifices, is evident. I have quoted these lines from these three verses that make up this prophecy to show you that although other things may be discussed in this prophecy, the fact that it has Jerusalem and the temple unambiguously in view throughout all three verses is obvious to anyone regardless of what else they may say about this difficult section of scripture. Next this phrase, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks are determined for the people and the holy city in order to accomplish these six things. There are some, like preterists, for example, that say that these six things were fulfilled with Christ and his atoning death at Calvary, and there can be no doubt that a few of these six things could easily be said to have occurred at that point. 
but the majority of these prophecies I don't believe can be shown to have occurred already, though they can be shown to refer to prophecies of the kingdom age, sometimes called the millennium. So let's take each of these six things and see first if they can be said to have occurred already in history, and second discuss if there is scriptural support to see them in view of an ultimate future fulfillment of the Jewish people, Jerusalem, and the temple. The first one is to finish the transgression. The word for transgression is pesha, and it basically means rebellion. The word for finish is kala, and it means to restrain. This is one of the more difficult of the six to try to say has already occurred in history. The preterist will play up the idea that the word for finish does not seem to say that it is ended for good, but rather that the transgression is restrained. They would say that after Christ's death, rebellion is restrained. They would do this despite clear warnings that the rebellion would continue to increase in the last days. Second Timothy 3 verses 1 through 5 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. It seems that in the, quote, last days, rather than sin being restrained, it is let off its leash. No matter which way you choose to interpret whose transgression will be restrained, it doesn't work. The context of this passage seems to demand that the ethnic Jews will have their transgressions restrained, and we know based on the current state of the rebellion of the Jews and the rejection of Christ that we cannot say this has occurred. If we were to say that this applies to the saved individual, I would give it more credence despite the complete departure from the context. There is a sense in which the Holy Spirit partially restrains us from sinning in the form of conviction of sins, but it does not altogether restrain us from sinning. That's the idea here. Notice the next prophecy, quote, to make an end of sins. Here we have more support for what is meant in the previous prophecy, that is, a finishing or ending of sins. Here the word for end is much stronger. In all 64 uses of the word, it means to finish, or put a final, complete end to. In other words, it is never used as simply a restraint of anything. Therefore, the preterist has a much more difficult time here trying to explain it as already happened at Calvary. Both these first two are not speaking of an end to the consequences of transgression or sin, or an end to the power of sin, or some other thing that would be easy to explain in light of Calvary and the New Covenant. No, here we're told without reservation that transgression and sin themselves will be finished. There is no theology that can account for this other than a futurist view. The futurist position not only has the ability to explain this, but it also has explicit scriptural support for these two ideas. A direct reference to this is found in Ezekiel 37 in a prophecy of the millennium. We will see later that Daniel seems to be drawing heavily from this prophecy of Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel. Ezekiel 37, 21-23 says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. 
but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Here we have a direct prophecy of God ending Israel's transgression. This is a complete end. He says that they will not defile themselves any more with their idols or with their transgressions. This is the exact language used back in Daniel. We don't have to pretend that sin or transgression has stopped if we simply take God's word at face value. It has not happened yet, but it will. Again, we have confirmation later that essentially the six prophecies in view in Daniel 9 are taken directly from Ezekiel 37, a passage clearly speaking of the millennium where Christ rules on earth. John in the book of Revelation gives us another picture of what this restraining of transgression and end of sins looks like, and it's no coincidence that it appears in the quintessential millennium passage of Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, 1-3 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished, but after these things he must be released for a while. The amillennialist who believes we are living in that time right now, where Satan is bound, has a difficult time explaining that Satan is no longer able to tempt a person currently, especially in light of verses like 1 Peter 5 verse 8, which explains that Satan, like a lion, is looking for people to devour. This difficulty, as well as a great many others, would disappear if one simply takes the Bible at face value, that these great events have not occurred yet, but we can be sure that they will, as they are foretold in Holy Scripture. The next one is to make reconciliation for iniquity. Of all the six prophecies of Daniel 9.24, this one, and to a lesser extent the next one, are the only ones I would say without reservation have indeed already occurred. Christ on the cross has reconciled us to God, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, by taking upon himself the wrath of God, which we deserved for our iniquity, thereby giving us peace with God and reconciliation. So in that sense, I would give one point out of six to the preterist. But I would submit that if we look at this in context, this is a prophecy about the Jews and Jerusalem. And we know that they indeed will one day be saved, as Paul the Apostle prophesies, as we will see. And when they are saved, they will be saved in the same way that we have been, by grace, through faith, in the atoning work of the person of Jesus Christ. So the language of, quote, reconciliation for iniquity is just as appropriate for them in a future context as it is for us if we are saved. For the preterist, who does not believe this future reconciliation for the Jews is going to happen, I will refer you to the Apostle Paul. Please notice that in this passage in Romans 11, that Paul reiterates the millennial prophecies by quoting Isaiah, and particularly one of the many prophecies of the future ending of sins in the kingdom age, just as we saw in Daniel. Romans 11:25-27 says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, quote, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins." This is a very important point. Paul, who was obviously writing after Christ's death and resurrection, is saying that there is a yet future, quote, turning away from ungodliness and, quote, taking away of sins for national Israel. 
Anyone that says that all of Daniel 9.24 occurred on the cross has a different theology than Paul the Apostle. Paul is going out of his way here to tell you that the promises given to Daniel that Israel will be saved and their rebellion will end was not a promise taken away from them. It will happen after the, quote, fullness of the Gentiles comes in. This is a mystery that Paul does not want you to be ignorant of or conceited about. The next one is to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is the only other one of the six prophecies that I would agree with the preterist by saying that it could indeed be said that everlasting or perpetual righteousness came in with Christ's atoning death. Our righteousness is in Christ, and it is not dependent upon ourselves anymore if we are saved, and therefore is everlasting. However, this again has the weakness of requiring you to divorce it from the context of having to do with the Jews and Jerusalem. The best explanation, like the others, is to see this in light of the promises given to the prophets about the future of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. This idea of bringing in everlasting righteousness, like the idea of a future ending of sins, is a common theme found in the promises to Jerusalem about the future kingdom age. As we read a few of these promises God makes about this everlasting righteousness of Jerusalem in the millennium, keep in mind how difficult it would be to imagine God not keeping this particular promise because of the way he says it. Isaiah 62 verses 1 through 2 says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. I just realized that this new naming of Jerusalem mentioned in Isaiah 62 verse 2 is foretold in the last verse of the book of Ezekiel. After Ezekiel spends nine chapters detailing the millennium and the various things that are going to happen in it, he ends his description of an obviously different Jerusalem in terms of the structure by saying, All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. The words, The Lord is there, is sometimes transliterated as Yahweh Shema, so Jerusalem will indeed have a new name in the millennium. How a preterist and others can read a verse like this, quote, And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns, and simply say that God has not done nor will ever do what he said he would do, I will never understand. The point being made by the Lord through Isaiah here is much the same as Paul when he quoted Isaiah in Romans 11, that God will take away the sins and make Israel righteous, and they will never again go astray after other gods. It is difficult to underestimate the importance of this eschatological idea of the future righteousness of Israel. It is repeated in many places and in many ways, always in an eschatological sense. It is so important that it is the one idea that Paul picks out of all the prophecies of the future of the Jews to passionately reinforce will take place. The idea again is that the ending of sins and future righteousness of Israel is yet future and that it will indeed take place just as Isaiah, who he quotes, said it would. It is with this in mind that the next prophecy, to seal up vision and prophecy, should be understood. The prophecies of Jerusalem and its future judgment and subsequent restoration and reconciliation are the completion of Bible prophecy. If you don't believe me, read the last three chapters of the Bible. Jerusalem is referred to almost 20 times in those chapters. The very last words of the Bible, which even a partial preterist would admit is still future, refer to a prophecy in Isaiah 11 being fulfilled. 
and Isaiah 11 is another quintessential millennium passage. While running the risk of being redundant, I think the best way to demonstrate that the sealing up or finishing vision and prophecy is to again quote Paul in Romans 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul is saying, look guys, we still have all this stuff in Isaiah about Israel and its future that has not come to pass yet, and it's still going to come to pass just as it is written, but not until the fullness of the Gentiles happens first. In other words, the eschatological promises to Israel are the final things that need to occur to complete vision and prophecy, the things which Paul clearly did not believe had happened yet. And finally, and to anoint the most holy or most holy place. The final thing that will occur for the people and for the holy city after 70 weeks is that the most holy will be anointed. The preterists would like to have this refer to Jesus and his anointing, possibly at his baptism. While this is a technical possibility, there is no use in scripture of this phrase speaking of a person, but only a thing. The idea that this is speaking of an anointing of the most holy place, not a person, is therefore almost universally agreed upon scholars of many different backgrounds, and most Bible translations translate this as most holy place accordingly. The preterist takes this to refer to Jesus despite the grammatical difficulty. They might even try to point to Hebrews where Jesus is said to minister in the holy place as a kind of compromise recognizing that this must refer to the temple. That is, they might say that, in a sense, Jesus is kind of like the Holy of Holies. But if you think about that theologically, there is no sense that Christ is like the Holy of Holies or the temple. He is the spirit that goes into the temple or the Holy of Holies, but he is not the temple itself. That is the church which he indwells, theologically speaking. Again, there is a much better explanation if one is willing to look at prophecies of the kingdom age or millennium as yet future. The temple that Ezekiel spends almost nine complete chapters describing at the end of his book has obviously never been built. The size of it would be equal to the entire city of Jerusalem. A temple the size of a city is a big temple. The preterist is left with saying that it will never be built, basically saying that it could have been built if the Jews had accepted the Messiah, but since they didn't, it won't. Alternately, they might say that it is only symbolic of the new covenant. But if you take Ezekiel at face value, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, the anointing of the temple that Daniel is talking about here is referring to the dedication of that temple in Ezekiel, this immense structure that is said to be built in the millennium. This will be incredibly important as we proceed, but for now just know that there is a law in Exodus which told Moses how to anoint a temple in order to inaugurate its use. In other words, this prophecy of the anointing of the most holy place is saying that there will be 70 weeks before the inauguration of the kingdom age temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48, a temple that must be built in order to fulfill prophecy, a temple that all Jews who believe in the old scriptures are awaiting currently. The next verse, Daniel 9:25, says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. At this point, I will deal less with the preterist viewpoint, as they more or less believe what most conservatives do about the following verses, that is, that they refer to Christ, that is, until the last verse, which we will discuss when we get to it. 
The preterist, however, is typically unconcerned with getting any of these dates right, as they view all the talk of seven weeks and 62 weeks, etc., as basically irrelevant and only to be seen as symbolic numbers, referring, as R.C. Sproul says, to the fullness of time. I would also like to say that when I first heard of the theory that I'm about to express to you, put forth by Charles Cooper in his book, I rejected it solely on the grounds that I had been told time and time again that this passage in Daniel 9 was the best prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament, fulfilled to the very day, and so I didn't want to lose what I thought was a great apologetic argument. I even told Mr. Cooper at a conference that I agreed with him on most of his conclusions about things, but not on his exposition of Daniel 9. My reasoning at that point was not based on any evidence to the contrary that I had, but rather that I just didn't like the idea of losing what I thought was a great apologetic argument. After studying this passage in depth, I found that he made a very compelling case that I had a hard time arguing with. I also found that the idea that this prophecy was fulfilled to the very day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey was not at all accurate, and because of the complex mathematics involved in such a study, almost no one was checking to see if it was accurate, and therefore almost everyone that has a position about this holds it out of more or less blind faith in the person who told them that it was accurate. I also believe this prophecy is accurate to the day, but that it has to do with what the angel said it would have to do with, that is, Daniel's people and the holy city, that is, Jerusalem. Let's take this phrase, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Here we come to a very important point in the text if we're going to attempt to find an accurate fulfillment of this 70 weeks. This is trying to tell us when to start the 70 weeks clock. It says that we start it from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. The word for command is sometimes translated decree. There are about four events in scripture that have been proposed as candidates for this decree. And you thought this was going to be easy. Most commentators and scholars say that this decree occurred when Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls in 445 BC. There are a number of problems with this that we're going to look at later, but one notable one is that by saying that this event is the decree, they are ignoring that this was not a decree or command given by Artaxerxes, but rather simply his permission and supplies. This would seem to be a minor point until you realize that there is an alternative that is being overlooked for specific reasons that is obviously a decree. Daniel, at the time of writing this 70 weeks prophecy in Babylon, was about 80 years old. The Babylonian Empire he had been taken captive by when he was a teenager had just been overthrown by the Persians. And what's more, the name of the Persian king who now ruled the world was named Cyrus. There were two reasons that that fact must have been absolutely astounding to Daniel. The first is that 200 years before his time, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about a future king which would be named Cyrus. Isaiah 45, 1-4 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord who call you by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. 
I have named you, though you have not known me. This prophecy, written 200 years before Cyrus, essentially tells the Persian king that his recent conquest of Babylon and other places was a gift to him from God, not of his own doing. But this prophecy in Isaiah 44 and 45 goes even further when it says the following. Isaiah 45:13 says, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. And just before that, in chapter 44, it says, in verse 28, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple, Your foundations shall be laid. So now, God's message to Cyrus, written 200 years in advance, tells Cyrus that he was going to make a decree that the city of Jerusalem and the temple, which in Daniel's day was totally destroyed, would be rebuilt. Okay, so you can imagine that someone showed the book of Isaiah to Cyrus at some point, right? Well, we don't have to wonder if Cyrus got the message or not, because there is literally a copy of the decree which he made, which would have been posted all around the known world, recorded in the Bible. Ezra 6.3 says, In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits. This is also mentioned in Second Chronicles 36.22 and 23, which says, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, All the kingdom of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Now back to Daniel. This guy has been praying for the city and the temple to be rebuilt. He realizes that the time is close. After all, the 70 years Jeremiah predicted is almost up. And there is a man named Cyrus on the throne, just like Isaiah said there would be. Daniel, because of his familiarity with scripture, would have known that Cyrus was about to make a decree even before Cyrus did. The argument against the 70 weeks starting with the decree of Cyrus is based on one idea and one idea alone. They say that in the text of the decree in Ezra 6 and 2 Chronicles, which we just read, there is no mention of the city being decreed to be rebuilt, only the temple. And that's true. In the written decree recorded in Ezra and 2 Chronicles, there is no mention of Cyrus decreeing that the city be rebuilt. After all, the angel told Daniel from the going forth of the command to rebuild the city, not the temple. Cyrus and Ezra 6 never mention the city. Case closed, right? There is a major flaw with that argument. If you look at what God said that Cyrus would do in Isaiah 44 and 45, he says explicitly that the decree would also concern the rebuilding of the city. Isaiah 44 verse 28 says, Who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. In that verse, the city and the temple are mentioned as a part of what Cyrus will decree. To make matters worse, in the next chapter, which is a reiteration of the same decree, 
only the city is mentioned. Isaiah 45.13 says, I have raised him up in righteousness and will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So if God says that Cyrus's decree was to rebuild the city, then that's what it did. Case closed. Cooper says of this, quote, This passage alone is sufficient to prove that Cyrus did decree concerning Jerusalem, quote, She will be rebuilt. Otherwise, God's word has failed, which is a conclusion we are not prepared to accept. I have personally never heard anyone who holds to the other views deal with this adequately. They point out that the text of the decree recorded in Ezra and Second Chronicles doesn't specifically mention the city, but they keep Isaiah 44 and 45 out of the discussion, as they prove that Cyrus's decree was indeed to rebuild the city, as well as the temple. The real reason people pretend Isaiah 44 and 45 aren't there and push the beginning of the 70 weeks up about 83 years or so is because they have already decided what the outcome of this prophecy should be. That is, having something or other to do with Jesus. Though exactly what depends on the mathematical gymnastics that each individual commentator does, whether it's his baptism or death or triumphal entry, will depend on who has the calculator since these dates are by no means fixed in history, and so each commentator has some wiggle room if they need it. But the problem is that there are no acrobatics, no matter how skilled they are with a calculator, that would allow them to make this prophecy have anything to do with Jesus if they started the 70 weeks with Cyrus's decree. So they must look for something else that would allow them to get closer to the time of Christ. It's a clear case of confirmation bias. A few other problems with starting the 70 weeks with Artaxerxes and Nehemiah in 445, the most commonly held view among conservatives, are as follows. The exact date for this is not recorded in Scripture. One would think that if we're going to get this right to the very day, we should be given the very day that it started. This, as we will see, can be ascertained in the case of Cyrus's decree, but with Artaxerxes in 445, we are simply given the month and year it occurs. In Sir Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince, which is the book cited by nearly all proponents of the 445 view, Anderson simply chooses the first day in the month arbitrarily. Another problem with the Artaxerxes 445 view is that Nehemiah was sent to build a wall, not a city. That wall was built in 52 days, we are told. A city was not built in 52 days, nor was it claimed to be by the text. Speaking specifically of Sir Robert Anderson's view that this ended with the triumphal entry, there are problems with his theory as more data comes out regarding the date of Passover for the year, derived from the so-called Elephantine Papyrus, which makes even the recent improvements on Anderson's view impossible according to some. Stranger still is the fact that this theory would mean that the prophecy totally ends a good 30-plus years before one would think it would end, contextually speaking, that is, at the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. I mean, the prophecy is unambiguously supposed to be about the city and the temple, and to just leave a 30-plus year gap before the destruction of the temple is unlikely. Granted, the destruction of the temple is required to occur after, not during the 69th week, according to verse 26, but you would think that it would be a little more precise, especially given how precise the rest of the prophecy is, as we will see. Next, we have the phrase, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Here, we run into probably the single biggest problem as to why everyone thinks this has something to do with Jesus. That is, that the translators of certain Bible versions also believed that, and they inserted into the text 
things that are not in the Hebrew text to make their personal views prominent. I'm sure that the translators thought that they were doing us a favor by doing this, and I'm not accusing them of doing anything dishonest, but this will be the first of many places in the next three verses that the translators do things that the underlying text never required them to do. This phrase, Messiah the Prince, here in the New King James Version, and many other versions, capitalizes the M and P, which is a translator choice, and there is no such idea of capitalization in the Hebrew. It is simply the translators expressing their opinion about the identity of this anointed prince. At least in the New King James Version, it's toned down from the ASV, which says it should be translated, The Anointed One, adding the definite article, The, as if it was saying, The Messiah. If it was the case that the Hebrew definite article was present here, that is ha, then we would have no choice but to say this is referring to Jesus, as he is the only person that could fit such a designation. But the Hebrew does not have the definite article, and modern translations reflect this, and translate the verse like this. For example, the ESV says, Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it will be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. The Net Bible says, So know and understand from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. The difference here is clear. There is no reason that the anointed ruler must be Jesus, evidenced by the non-capitalization of an anointed one and the absence of a definite article, saying instead an anointed one. The term anointed in Hebrew, where we get the term Messiah, is something that the modern Christian only associates with Jesus. But a simple word search and a concordance shows that the word in the Old Testament is almost never referring to the Messiah, but to kings or priests, and even once to Cyrus, who we've already mentioned. Isaiah 45.1 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the devil doors, so that the gates will not be shut. Here, Cyrus, a pagan Persian king, is referred to as a messiah, that is, an anointed one. In this case, the anointing he had was to do certain things to advance God's plan, including the letting of his people go and commanding the temple and the city to be rebuilt. The word is found in several contexts in the Old Testament, mostly referring to rulers and priests who do God's bidding in one way or another, either in a military, political, or religious sense. Also, in verse 24, the word Messiah is spoken of again, but in this case it is referring to the Holy of Holies, quote, and to anoint, that is Mashiach, the holy place. So just in one chapter, we have in view a Gentile, probably unsaved king, who God called a Mashiach in Isaiah 45, as well as a part of a temple called Mashiach. I hope this is enough to suggest to you that Daniel can say the word Mashiach without it necessarily referring to Christ. Again, I don't mind this being about Jesus. I love Jesus. I think that he is the Messiah, HaMashiach. But I think that if we understand that Messiah is just a word that means anointed in the Hebrew language, we can discover the real meaning of this text. I believe that we don't have to guess about this, and that scripture gives us the confirmations we need to be sure that we're on the right track with this thinking. But to be able to understand who this anointed prince is, we need to clear up another problem created by some overzealous translators. This problem arises as a result of the following translation. There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. 
Almost without exception, commentators will tell you that this is a way of saying 69 weeks. In other words, 7 weeks plus 62 weeks equals 69 weeks, or 483 years. When asked why scripture wouldn't simply say 69 weeks, instead of making you add 7 weeks and 62 weeks to get 69, there's usually no answer. It is some extra homework Gabriel wanted to give us, I suppose. I submit that there is a very good reason that Scripture mentions two distinct sets of weeks here. First, a set of seven, and then a set of sixty-two. We should not simply add them up and pretend that they are to be taken as one large block of time. The problem is one of punctuation. The meaning of this verse changes drastically depending on where you end the sentence. The Masoretic text, which the Old Testament is based on, calls for a period after the end of the seven weeks, which would make this verse read as follows. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. But the problem with following those rules for a translator is that, if you did so, it would mean that from the going forth of the decree until an anointed prince arrived, there would only be seven weeks, or forty-nine years. This would make it impossible to speak of Christ, because he obviously didn't appear forty-nine years after Cyrus's decree, or Artaxerxes' decree, or any other option available. The Net Bible has a fascinating footnote on this point. It says, quote, The accents in the Masoretic text indicate disjunction at this point, meaning a period after the seven weeks, which would make it difficult, if not impossible, to identify the anointed one slash prince of this verse as messianic. The reference in verse 26 to the 62 weeks as a unit favors the Masoretic text accentuation, not the traditional translation. If one follows the Masoretic text accentuation, one may translate this, quote, from the going forth of the message to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks, period, during a period of 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, but in distressful times, end quote. The present translation follows a traditional reading of the passage that deviates from the Masoretic text accentuation. So they're really basically saying, if we translated this the way that we should, we couldn't have this be Jesus. So we're not going to translate it that way. The ESV, however, picking up on this, is the first version that I know of to apply the correct punctuation, even though it makes it impossible to see the fulfillment as being messianic. Daniel 9.25 in the ESV says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. So again, the difference is that we now must look for an anointed ruler exactly 49 years from the decree. And that anointed ruler obviously can't be Jesus because it's far too early. And the 62 weeks is speaking of the entire time that the city and the temple will exist before its destruction, which we'll get to later. But for now, we must discover who this ruler is. Before we can know who shows up 49 years after Cyrus's decree, we need to know when that decree happened. We can ascertain this date in part because we know that there would be exactly 70 years from the fall of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar until the decree of Cyrus. Since we know the date for the fall of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, we can count 70 years from that date in order to arrive at the very date of Cyrus's decree, the beginning of the 70 weeks prophecy. 
From there, we can calculate exactly 49 years, 7 weeks, and we arrive at the 28th day of the 4th month of the ancient Jewish civil year of Tammuz. This is the exact date that Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem to build the walls, a feat which he accomplished in 52 days. As a side note, it's interesting that Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem is the fulfillment of this, and that the very day of that arrival is mentioned in Scripture, because that is exactly what we're supposed to look for according to Daniel 9.25, that is, the arrival in Jerusalem of an anointed ruler. This is perhaps why Anderson and others opt for the triumphal entry, even though it certainly wasn't the Lord's first arrival in Jerusalem. In other words, they knew that in order for their interpretation to be legitimate, it had to have something to do with someone's arrival in Jerusalem. This is impressive and a bit of a relief for me, because Scripture gives us a way to check our facts and make sure that we're on the right path before moving on to much more difficult areas in which we'll have to rely on extra-biblical sources for dates. So this is kind of a checkpoint where we can find the exact dates without leaving the pages of Scripture. We know the date of Cyrus's decree, and we know the exact date of Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, and they are exactly 49 years or 7 weeks apart. Yep, we're on the right track. So you might say, yeah, so Nehemiah was at the right place at the right time. But what about this anointed prince? The prince part for Nehemiah is easy. The word for prince is Nagid. It's a general term used of leaders, whether military, political, or religious. It's translated as governor, leader, captain, noble, prince, and ruler in different places in the Bible. Nehemiah was the governor of Israel. Nehemiah 8.9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, This word for governor is a title used on only a few occasions in the Bible. It comes from a Persian word meaning something like to be feared. And it's clear that he was what we would consider the governor or main political leader. So yeah, Nehemiah definitely fits the bill for a Nagid. But was he an anointed Nagid? Well, if we look at it in general terms, Nehemiah was certainly anointed by God to do what he did. But as I was looking more closely into the ministry of Nehemiah, I found that he too also prayed the specific Leviticus 26 prayer that Daniel prayed, which I made such a big deal about at the beginning of this chapter. In the first chapter of Nehemiah, before he makes his request to the king, he prays the very same prayer that Daniel prayed, asking for the forgiveness of their forefathers. It seems that Nehemiah is also linked to the 70 weeks timeline through that prayer. The idea that Nehemiah was anointed is clearly evident in the book of Nehemiah. Before entering into the presence of the king to ask for money and material to leave and go build the walls, Nehemiah prays, quote, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. God granted this request from Nehemiah as well as paved the way for complete success in accomplishing the Lord's will in Jerusalem even among great trials. To understand Nehemiah's importance, and why he should be pointed to as an integral part of the 70 weeks prophecy, it should be recognized that there are even a few books of the Bible written about the stalled building progress after Cyrus's decree. The book of Haggai and Zechariah, for example, were written to Israel after Cyrus's decree, but before Nehemiah to encourage the Jews, who had zealously begun to rebuild the temple and city after Cyrus's decree, but because of setbacks and fears and too much focus on their personal lives, the work had stalled. The ministry of Haggai and Zechariah did encourage the people to continue their work, which resulted in the finishing of the temple only a few years later. 
But after that, the people of Israel fell into the same trap with rebuilding the city around the temple. The lack of walls made the city a dangerous place to live, and therefore not too much migration back to the city was happening. I think this is why scripture points to the leadership of Nehemiah and his wall-building project as such an important part of this process. That is, that although Cyrus, years before, had let the Israelites go home, and they had permission to rebuild the city and temple, and had even made some progress, there was no real leadership to get God's project moving. And for all intents and purposes, it was totally stalled, and the people were back in sin, having forgotten the law of God. Nehemiah was the guy you can point to and say, after him and his walls, which made the city safe for families to inhabit again, and therefore effectively beginning the migration back to Israel, as well as his spiritual leadership, which literally taught the people the law of God again, and restarted the priesthood and the temple services, God's project of bringing Israel back from the ashes really got underway, and the city grew and grew until it was eventually destroyed. Well, 434 years later. The next phrase reads, Then for 62 weeks it will be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. After Nehemiah, there would be 62 weeks, or 434 years. The text does not seem to suggest anything too specific will happen during this time, other than it, quote, will be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. Though we find out from the next verse that the 434 years seems to be designating a time after which the city and temple would be destroyed. It says in verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. In other words, it seems as if it is saying that during the 434 years, the city and the temple will exist until it is once again destroyed. The Net Bible seems to agree with this idea that the 434 years is not saying that it will take 434 years for the temple and the city to be rebuilt, but rather that it is a period of time in which the city will return before its destruction. Next we have this phrase, squares and moat. The term for squares is sometimes translated plaza or square. It is interesting that in the early times, before the city was completely rebuilt, the main place that is mentioned in Nehemiah and Ezra that was built, in which people met, was a big plaza by the water gate. Nehemiah 8.1 says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Moat is translated wall in some versions, but there doesn't seem to be any good reason for thinking that it should be wall. Most translations have this as moat or something similar. The word means sharp or cut and can mean something like moat or ditch, which is pretty much the opposite of wall. And if it was wall, that would be the only time the word would have been used that way in scripture. It's an interesting word, and it's only used a few times in scripture. Oddly, it's translated as gold more times than anything else when used as a noun. Next, we have the phrase, but in troubled time. Whether this is referring to the building of the walls that Nehemiah undertook, which according to the narrative had tremendous opposition, or it is simply referring to the troublesome next 434 years of Jewish history in the Second Temple Age, with oppression from the Greeks and then later the Romans, they would both work as far as I'm concerned as they are both equally true, though I tend to favor the latter explanation. Moving on to verse 26, it says, And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, 
and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. So first we have this phrase, and after the 62 weeks. Two things are supposed to happen after, not during, but after these 434 years. Number one, an anointed one shall be cut off, and number two, the city and the temple will be destroyed. To make this point more clear, we do not have an exact date for when both of these things are supposed to happen, only that they will be after the 434 years, though one would expect them to be very close to the end of that time. One thing is for sure from the text, they cannot happen before the 434 years is up. Let's take this phrase, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. This verse is usually taken to mean that after 434 years, Christ will be crucified. Again, the translator's personal beliefs, despite the absence of textual reasons, have perpetuated this idea. Let's first take this phrase, an anointed one. This particular variation of the word Mashiach, here translated as anointed, appears 39 times in the Old Testament. And in every case except for this one, what is being referred to as anointed is clearly identified, whether it was a king or priest or whatever. This is the only case in the Bible where that information is not provided. Some versions, like the New King James Version that I'm using here, insert the word one here, as in an anointed one, as if a person was in view. But that is a decision on the part of the translator and not in the actual text. In addition, Charles Cooper points out that in the Greek versions of the Old Testament, the instance of this word was understood by the ancient translators not to be referring to a person at all. He says, quote, in both versions, speaking of the Septuagint and the Theodosian, the term charisma, oil for anointing or action of anointing, occurs for the Hebrew term Mashiach, see Exodus 29.7 and 30.25. The word refers to that which the anointing is performed, the ungent or ointment. There are two oddities about the Greek translation here. First, charisma is a neuter singular noun instead of a masculine noun, as in the Hebrew Bible. This indicated that the Greek translators did not interpret the Hebrew Mashiach to refer to a person. If the Greek translators had understood Daniel to be referring to a person, Christos would have been more appropriate, since it refers to a person. Second, neither version has the article. Therefore, an appropriate translation is an anointing, I would say, as opposed to an anointed one, and certainly not Messiah with a capital M, which is clearly wrong. As a side note, this could just as easily be translated an anointed place, as we will see later. So now we have this phrase, shall be cut off. So an anointing or an anointed place is cut off. What could that possibly mean? Well, for starters, we need to look at what the idea of cut off means in Scripture. It can be used literally, that is, to cut off a piece of fabric or something. It is also sometimes used to refer to someone being separated or removed or destroyed, in other words, killed. I'm going to suggest to you that this idea of an anointing being cut off is referring to a prophecy that God gave to Solomon after the temple that he just built was dedicated and anointed. That prophecy contained a warning that if they rebelled against God, then he would cut off the people and the temple which he anointed. As I read from 1 Kings 9 verses 6 through 7, remember the context. Solomon has just built the first temple ever. He has just had a huge party dedicating that temple. Now the celebrations were all over, and God gives him this message which concerns the temple he just dedicated. It says, But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house, that is the temple, which I have consecrated for my name 
I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. In order to fully appreciate what is being said here and how it applies to our verse in Daniel 9, we need to go back to the beginning of the 70 weeks prophecy, where Gabriel tells Daniel that one of the things that was to be accomplished at the end of the 70 weeks was a most holy place was to be anointed. Daniel 9.24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to anoint a most holy place. Every temple had to be anointed with a very special oil when it was dedicated. This is described in Exodus 30, verses 25 through 29, which says, And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. This oil was apparently only used once for the initial dedication of a temple, though it also had other uses, like for anointing the priest. But in regard to its use for anointing the holy place, it was only to be used for temple dedications. Interestingly, there is a belief in Rabbinic Judaism that the original oil that was used to dedicate the tabernacle would still be around when it came time to anoint the future, as yet unbuilt, temple described by Ezekiel. Whether this is true or not is unimportant, but it does show you that there was an understanding that the new temple needed to be anointed. In the passage we just read, after the dedication of the first temple by Solomon, God said that he would cut off the people and the temple if they disobeyed him. In that same verse, God said that he consecrated the temple himself. 1 Kings 9.7 says, Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. The word he used there is the word Kadesh, which is a word used to describe what happens to the temple after it was anointed in Exodus 30 verse 29. You shall consecrate them, the tabernacle and the altar, etc., that they may be Kadesh, that is, most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. So if this is correct, this verse would read almost exactly as the ESV does, without the word one, since the idea of it being a person is not conveyed in the original, as we have seen. So it would read, And after sixty-two weeks the anointing shall be cut off and have nothing. If you translate it as the Septuagint had it, it would read, And after sixty-two weeks the anointing shall be cut off and judgment is no longer in it. I think it's interesting to note that the Septuagint says, and judgment is no longer in it. In other words, not only did the scholars behind the Septuagint think that the anointing was a thing, not a person, they thought it was a place, and a place where judgment apparently at one point could be found. I'm going to suggest to you that what this verse is referring to is the temple being cut off or destroyed, exactly what God told Solomon would happen if the people broke the covenant. This of course fits the context of Daniel 9 like a glove, too. If this is true, then how do we explain the next phrase, which says, and shall have nothing? So after 62 weeks, the anointing shall be cut off and have nothing? This phrase here in the ESV is translated, and shall have nothing, while the King James Version translators translate this phrase, but not for himself, obviously to bolster the case that this anointed one is Christ, and this is speaking of his death. The Net Bible, in a footnote, says of this, The King James rendering, but not for himself, apparently suggesting a vicarious death, cannot be defended. 
Stephen Miller says of it, the King James translation would signify that Christ's death was for others, which is certainly a scriptural truth, but the phrase is in Hebrew an idiom for not have. In light of this, most people these days who are trying to explain this as being about Christ's death say things like, When Christ died, he didn't have anything, remembering how he said, Why have you forsaken me on the cross? Or, as Miller says, quote, Thus, when Christ died, his earthly ministry seemed to have been in vain. His disciples had deserted him, and from all appearances he had not accomplished what he had set out to do. Commentators are trying to force the theological idea that Christ had nothing at the time of his death in order to make their presupposition about this verse make sense. There was certainly no explicit teaching that would suggest that Christ had nothing at the time of his death. This is perhaps why the King James rendered it not for himself, even though it wasn't accurate. That is to avoid the theological trouble of saying that Christ had nothing at the time of his death. A few pre-cross verses seem to suggest that Christ had quite a lot. John 3 verse 35 says, The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. John 13, 3 and 4 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. In addition, I don't think that Peter's denying Christ or the disciples hiding themselves after the crucifixion can be seen as them no longer being Christ at the time of his death, especially in light of John 18, 7-9, where the soldiers came to take Christ away, which says, Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, quote, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. The underlying Hebrew for this term, have nothing, is not very specific. It basically is just a word that means nothing, or not exist, or non-entity, none of which have to do with Jesus, and hence all the odd theology from people convinced this must be about him. Charles Cooper renders this phrase, After the sixty-two weeks, the anointed place shall be cut off, and there will be nothing left of it. This is speaking of the temple, and based on the timeline we're about to see, it makes perfect sense to be speaking of the destruction of the temple, as that is exactly what happened after 62 weeks. This would also make the words of Christ concerning this event all the more meaningful. Matthew 24, 1 and 2 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him, showing him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another, that shall not be thrown down. That is, there will be nothing left of it. Before we move on, let's recap the way that I and folks like Charles Cooper believe the verses that we have been studying so far should read. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, that is, forty-nine years. Then, for sixty-two weeks, that is, four hundred and thirty-four years, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks, the anointed place shall be cut off, and there will be nothing left of it. Next we have the phrase, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This part of the verse fits perfectly with the context, and it's giving us more information about it. Namely, who will destroy the city and the sanctuary? It tells us the people of the prince who is to come will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. This phrase is often taken to be speaking of the Antichrist. In other words, it would be saying something like, There is a prince who is to come way in the future, but he won't be around at the time of the destruction of the temple. Only his people will, 
and they will destroy the temple. This, then, is often taken as a way to determine the nationality of the Antichrist. Therefore, most people who hold to this view see the Antichrist as Roman, since the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. However, it should be noted that Joel Richardson and other proponents of a Middle Eastern Antichrist cite Josephus and others that attest that the Roman armies that laid siege to Jerusalem were mostly Arab mercenaries. Both of those views are missing the point by a mile, in my opinion. It should also be remembered that if indeed Daniel 2 or Daniel 7 isn't speaking of a so-called revived Roman Empire, which I firmly believe that they are not, as noted in the commentaries of those chapters, then this verse would constitute the only verse in the Bible that suggests a Roman nationality for the Antichrist. And even if I thought this verse was saying that the Antichrist would be a Roman or Arab, it would not be a good idea to build doctrine on this one verse alone. That being said, I don't think this verse is talking about the nationality of the Antichrist, or anyone else's nationality for that matter. Though it should be noted that I do think the Antichrist is in view in the next verse, and therefore my opposition to the normal futurist interpretation is not because I'm not a futurist, I certainly am, but it's only because I think that there is a much more logical explanation for this verse. And to be perfectly transparent, though I have made allusions to believing that the Antichrist could be of Jewish descent in the past, I honestly don't think the text is clear on that either. I am truthfully open to the idea of the Antichrist being ethnically anything at all. But again, I don't think this verse has anything to do with ethnicity or nationality. Here is why. When it says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, I believe it is trying to convey what actually happened in 70 AD. Titus's people, that is, the people under his command, destroyed the city and the temple, not Titus. In almost any other sacking of any city by the Romans, there would be no need to make this distinction. After all, if Titus or any other general ordered this to happen, he is responsible for it, and scripture would be right to put the blame on him. But the events of that day made it necessary for Scripture to describe the destruction of the temple and city as not being by Titus, but instead by his people. You see, according to Josephus, who was literally present and part of the court of Titus at the destruction, Titus did not order the temple destroyed. He had wanted to turn it into a temple for the Roman gods, but the people destroyed it anyway. It would be one thing if this were only briefly mentioned by Josephus. But instead, Josephus describes in many ways the mob-like destruction of the temple and city, despite Titus's repeated orders for it to be stopped. I'll quote a few excerpts. First, Josephus quotes Titus in a meeting with his generals about what to do with the temple. This was because the Jews were using the temple as a citadel for a kind of last stand. Josephus says, But Titus said that, quote, Although the Jews should get upon that holy house and fight us thence, Yet ought we not to revenge ourselves on things that are inanimate instead of the men themselves? And that he was not in any case for burning down so vast a work as that was, because this would be a mischief to the Romans themselves, as it would be an ornament to their government while it continued. Then, after Titus was informed that despite his orders the soldiers set fire to the temple, Josephus describes the following scene. And now a certain person came running to Titus and told him of this fire, as he was resting himself in his tent after the last battle, Whereupon he rose up in great haste, and, as he was, ran to the holy house, in order to have a stop put to the fire. Then did Caesar, both by calling to the soldiers that were fighting with a loud voice, and by giving a signal to them with his right hand, order them to quench the fire. But they did not hear what he said, though he spake so loud, having their ears already dimmed by a greater noise another way. 
nor did they attend to the signal he made with his hand neither, as still some of them were distracted with fighting, and others with passion. But as for the legions that came running thither, neither any persuasions nor any threatening could restrain their violence, but each one's own passion was his commander at that time. Josephus continues in another place, saying, But as the flame had not yet reached to its inward parts, but was still consuming the rooms that were about the holy house, and Titus supposing what the fact was, that the house itself might yet be saved, he came in haste and endeavored to persuade the soldiers to quench the fire, and gave orders to Liberia Alias, the centurion, and one of the spearmen that were about him, to beat the soldiers that were refractory with their staves, and to restrain them. Yet were their passions too hard for the regards they had for Caesar, and the dread they had of him who forbade them, as was their hatred of the Jews, and a certain vehement inclination to fight them too hard for them also. Moreover, the hope of plunder induced many to go on, as having this opinion, that all the places within were full of money, and as seeing that all around about it was made of gold, and thus the holy house was burnt down without Caesar's approbation. So if scripture had said that the prince, that is, Titus, destroyed the temple, it would have been a factually inaccurate statement. But instead, it said the people of the prince destroyed it, which I think you can now see why that would be an important distinction to make. The to come, as in the people of the prince to come, is therefore from Daniel's perspective, as this event was almost 500 years in the future at the time that he wrote. But for us, looking back, that prince to come has already come and gone. One more note on this idea of prince. Though the word can mean general, leader, or king, or indeed a literal prince, as in a son of a king, it is interesting to note that at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, Titus's father, Vespasian, was emperor, making Titus a literal prince, as well as a general at that time. This means that Titus would fulfill every possible meaning for the word prince. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. The it here, as in the end of it, is referring to the sanctuary. This is not just my opinion, but the opinion of many commentators and translators, such as the King James Version, New King James Version. Shall be with a flood. The Net Bible, I think, captures the idea of this when it says, will come speedily like a flood. The speed in which Jerusalem and the temple went from just fine to a heap of ashes was very quick. This was in part because of the fury of the Roman soldiers once they finally breached the walls of the city. So when did the destruction of Jerusalem happen? Was it 434 years after Nehemiah finished his walls? Remembering that it says, After the 62 weeks the anointed place shall be cut off and there will be nothing left of it. According to Charles Cooper's very detailed calculations, which I'll talk more about in a minute, the 434 years, marking the end of the 69th week, ended, and less than two months after that, the Roman armies surrounded the city. The important thing is that the destruction of the city and temple had to occur after the 434 years was up, and it did. By August, there was nothing left of either the city or the temple. It should be noted that at the exact time that the clock ran out on the 69th week, the Romans were already in Israel, and had been for two years or so, and they had already killed thousands of Jews and destroyed many towns, but they had not yet destroyed Jerusalem or the temple. But after the 69th week ran out, which again it was required to be after, not during, they finally surrounded Jerusalem itself. The next phrase is, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. 
Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Who is this he? Scholars often debate this very interesting question. There are really only two good possibilities from a grammatical perspective about what the antecedent for the he in verse 27 is, though you will never hear either of them in a commentary on this passage. The only possibilities you will hear from the commentaries will be first that the best antecedent for the he here is the prince to come of verse 26. This will be told to you by the average futurist. And though I don't agree with them about the grammar here, it should be noted that I do agree with the reason they are trying to make this claim. That is, because they think that this last verse is a yet future event, and the person who we're about to read about is the one we call Antichrist. The other possibility you will hear is that the antecedent for the he in verse 27 is the anointed one of verse 26. This is usually put forth by preterists, and despite it being nearly impossible from a grammatical perspective, they put this forth because they believe that verse 27 is not future, which puts them in a precarious position by having to defend why Jesus would do the things that the next few verses say that this person does. If one were to just consider this verse from a grammatical perspective and not a theological perspective, one would have to conclude that the people, as in the people of the prince to come, are the antecedent for this he in verse 27. I will quote from a study of this passage that brings out this point. Quote, With regard to the above passage, the subject noun is people, the ones destroying, and the parsed Hebrew word shakath, he shall destroy, is used as a Hebrew hiffel verb in perfect third-person masculine singular, and is completely acceptable in Hebrew with the use of the singular subject noun people whereas the translated word people in the above passage is implied to be acting as a single unit, therefore a singular noun and not a plural noun receiving a third masculine singular verb. In addition, the Hebrew word shikath must also be translated as he shall destroy, and not just simply as shall destroy, unless the he is either implied or articulated, written or verbally spoken, because the Hebrew word shikath is used in this passage as a Hebrew hiffel verb in perfect third person masculine singular as in the case in Daniel 9.26, and the people of the prince that shall come, he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Therefore, if the subject noun in the above King James Version, etc., passage is the singular people, and indeed it is, and it receives the corresponding third MS verb, he shall destroy, then by legitimate Hebrew and English grammatical standards, who must the he of Daniel 9.27 be, and he shall confirm? Does consistent, contiguous grammatical standards dictate the he of Daniel 9.27 be the same preceding antecedent singular subject noun people, the ones destroying, or can we just simply arbitrarily choose to substitute a different subject noun in place of people, in this case, a coming prince? They conclude this way. Once again, any attempt to substitute an alternate and arbitrary subject noun, a coming prince, for the he of Daniel 9.27, even if we assume a theoretical gap, other than the clearly grammatically defined antecedent people, the he of Daniel 9.26, is to simply ignore all Hebrew and English grammatical rules merely to fit a theory. If we're going to go down that slippery slope, where we ignore grammatical rules and standards simply to fit our theories, then there is little hope of ever arriving at the truth of Scripture. In other words, if the he of verse 27 is supposed to look back at anything, it must look back to the people. But the problem is, that makes no sense not grammatically, contextually, or anything else. This brings us to the last good possibility for the antecedent of the he of Daniel 9.27. There is none. I wrote Charles Cooper about this when trying to figure it all out, and this was his response. Quote, 
This is what I'm convinced the text is actually intending. The he of verse 27 does not have an antecedent, which drives scholars mad. They force the Hebrew to say something I don't believe it intended. The he of verse 27 does not look backwards. It points forward to a character not identified in the previous verses. This has caused much problem, and it will continue. I believe that the he of verse 27 does speak of the Antichrist, so I have no reason to argue this point, other than the fact that it is wrong to say that the prince to come in verse 26 is also referring to the Antichrist. The he in verse 27 just comes out of nowhere. And as I will demonstrate, we are given all the tools we will ever need to determine who the he is, because literally every aspect of the he here is described by Daniel in at least triplicate and other places in his writings. Many people have come to the conclusion that there is a gap of 2,000 plus years between the 69th and 70th weeks. I think this is the only way to read the text. Many who do not believe that such a gap exists are told that people believe in a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks for silly reasons. But as I hope to demonstrate to you, there is no other option but to see the 69th week ending at the second temple destruction and the last week beginning after another temple is built, an event that as of 2013 has not occurred yet. If this is true, then it would also explain the out-of-nowhere nature of the he at the beginning of verse 27. That is, it comes out of nowhere because the context of this verse would be far removed from the previous verse chronologically speaking. It is not as if the he would be unrecognized, though, as Daniel seems almost fixated on him in Daniel 7, 11, and 12, describing in detail his actions, so we are not left to guess as to who the he is in this verse. The preterist sees the he as Jesus here, and I will discuss this view at length later on. Next, this phrase, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So verse 27 starts out by saying that there will be a covenant which this he will be involved with that will be for one week. This would mean seven years. Remembering the word for week here basically means seven. Many people say that this is speaking of the Antichrist making a seven-year peace agreement with Israel, which would allow them to build the temple again. I would say that this is possible, but I think it's worth looking at this idea in depth, because if this is supposed to be something we are to watch for, we should be more informed about the specifics of it. Next we have this phrase, confirm a covenant. This is a strange term. The word confirm in the Hebrew basically means to overcome or prevail against, but it can also mean to strengthen. This is the only time the word is translated as confirm in the entire Bible. Some translations, noting that this has the connotation of prevailing against, say it should be translated as, He shall make a strong covenant, such as the ESV has it. The fact that we are given a time reference for this covenant, that is, for seven years, in addition to the next part of the verse, which discusses what will happen in the middle of the week, lead me to believe that this is probably saying that the Antichrist will either strengthen an already existing contract, or perhaps make a very strong contract, which will ultimately be for seven years. Though it should be noted that the text does not make it clear that the Antichrist will say that the agreement is a seven-year one, only that it will ultimately last for seven years. In other words, he may say that it will be an eternal covenant, but scripture, looking forward, tells us the duration. That being said, it could just as easily be advertised as a seven-year agreement. I personally think that the contract will somehow declare Jerusalem to be the capital city of the world, and the events in the first part of Revelation 17 will begin. See my study on Mystery Babylon for more. 
Basically, at the time of the signing, I believe that the Israelites will believe that their Messiah has returned and that Jerusalem will be the world capital city, just as described in places like Isaiah 65. If this is similar to what will happen, I think that the covenant that the Antichrist might confirm is something like the so-called Jerusalem Covenant, signed by political, military, and religious leaders in the early 1990s, which basically declared the city to be the world capital in the Bible, as well as declaring that the holy sites must be protected from any desecration and from any restriction to free access to them. It also used the words like peace and tranquility when it says Jerusalem, peace and tranquility shall reign in the city. Of course, this is interesting because of the passages that speak of the beginning of the Antichrist rule as having to do with peace and safety, such as 1 Thessalonians 5.3, which says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Also Daniel 8.25, which says, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. This covenant had no teeth when it was signed. There was no way to enforce it. But it is possible that this is why the text seems to suggest that he doesn't make the covenant itself, but rather strengthens an existing one. But please do not consider this a dogmatic stance on my part regarding the so-called Jerusalem covenant. I only mention it to give you an idea and some possibilities about the fulfillment of this verse. But the idea could just as easily be referring to a military agreement made with the Antichrist, which would suit the context of Daniel 11 perfectly. This would have support if one were willing to see the verses before Daniel 11.36 as also referring to the Antichrist instead of just to Antiochus when it says, And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Next we have this phrase, covenant with many. Who is this contract made with? Many say with Israel, but the text simply says many. Some make the case, like John Walford, that the word for many has to mean Israel. Though I don't find this argument very compelling, I don't see it as being a point of contention either. If the agreement was with Israel, as Walvard says, it would also need to be with its neighbors too, if it were to be about peace. After all, a peace treaty with only one nation at the negotiation table won't do much good. I think that many probably does mean many, and we should be looking for an agreement with many peoples involved, which obviously would also concern Israel based on the context. Next we have, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So here we find that in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. If this happens in the middle of the week, then it happens three and a half years after the covenant is made. This is a very interesting time reference, as three and a half years is spoken of all throughout Scripture as the time frame that will begin the last and most terrible part of the Antichrist's career. In fact, this three and a half year period is by far the most spoken about time frame in all of Bible prophecy. Here are just a few examples. Revelation 13.5 says, And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. 
Revelation 12.6 Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Revelation 12.14 But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half of time, from the presence of the serpent. Revelation 11.2 But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread on the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. What's very interesting about this is the fact that Daniel in another place refers to the three-and-a-half-year time period associated with the same event, that is, taking away the daily sacrifice and the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12.11 says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. This is a part of the death nail to the preterist interpretation of this verse. They say that verse 27 is talking about Jesus, and he, quote, confirms a covenant which they say refers to the atoning death. They basically disregard the seven-year part of the prophecy, saying that it isn't to be taken literally, as obviously the new covenant didn't just last for seven years. Then they say that when it says after three and a half years he takes away sacrifice and offering, it means that after Jesus' death, it effectively ended the need for sacrifices. They again say the three and a half year part is irrelevant. The reason that Daniel mentioning this event three times is such a devastating problem for the preterist should be obvious if we compare the verses. Daniel 12.11 says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Daniel 11.31 says, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. And Daniel 9.27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. It should be clear from reading these that Daniel is talking about the same event in all three verses. The three and a half years is mentioned in two of them, and all three of them mention the taking away of the sacrifice was associated with an abomination. Daniel 11.31 says that the taking away of the sacrifice defiled the temple. Are we really sure we want to associate Jesus with this event? When we consider that we know what Antiochus did when he set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig, which then caused the sacrifices to be taken away because of this abomination, we must say that this was in no way a prefiguration of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. All of that to say that Daniel obviously intends the taking away of the sacrifices to be a horrible thing that defiles the temple. This is not speaking of the atoning death of Christ. Further, the mention of the three and a half years, or the middle of the week, link this event to the Antichrist and the Revelation conclusively. Consider that the preterist, because of their supposition that there will be no Antichrist, is forced to disregard the references to the three and a half years as irrelevant, and say that this obviously horrific event by the Antichrist, mentioned at least two other times by Daniel, is in fact speaking of Jesus. This is a dangerous position to take if I've ever heard one. Before I go any further, I will quote Jesus and Paul in the New Testament about this event. Matthew 24:15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4 say, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Because of phrases like standing in the holy place used by Jesus and sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, we have great confidence, confirmed here in the New Testament, that the abomination of desolation will be an event that happens in the temple when a man declares himself to be God at a three and a half year mark after he confirms a covenant with many. This event will cause sacrifices in this future temple to stop. This is also right in line with the context of the entire prophecy. Since the previous verse, verse 26, ended with the destruction of the second temple, verse 27 is essentially saying that there will be another temple after that one, which we will see will also be destroyed. In other words, since the sacrifices will be stopped at the midpoint, remember that both Paul and Jesus confirmed that this event will happen in the temple, that this is not a metaphorical thing, then we can be sure that a temple must be rebuilt in the future for this to occur. In context, then, this prophecy of the 70 weeks predicts three things happening regarding the future of the temple system. A temple would be built after Daniel had the vision, keeping in mind there was no temple standing at the time the prophecy was made. This was fulfilled and is what we know of as the second temple. Then it prophesied that the second temple would also be destroyed, which was fulfilled by Titus. And finally, it says a third temple will be built. This is the one that the Antichrist will defile. And then, as we will see, it also is destroyed. I would even suggest that since verse 24 says that 70 weeks are determined until the anointing of a most holy place, referring to Ezekiel's millennial temple, that this prophecy is the story, basically, of three future temples, two of which will be built and destroyed, and one that will be for all intents and purposes eternal. The next phrase, And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. This is a difficult phrase, which quite honestly makes no sense in most translations. What does on the wing of abominations mean? I used to guess the phrase meant that there was a metaphorical bird of abominations, which had more abominations riding on its wing, so it brought wave after wave of abominations, or something like that. As I said, I didn't really know. I found out that I was trying to make sense of a phrase that really doesn't make sense at all. The word for wing here simply means wing. It can mean bird's wing or a wing of a palace, an extremity, edge, border, or corner. The Septuagint says that the word means temple, and it basically says the same thing here as all the other passages in Daniel. In other words, and upon the temple shall be the abomination of desolation. Probably one of the best technical treatments of this from a Hebrew scholar comes from the so-called pulpit commentary on Daniel 9. But to make a long story short, many translations now translate this verse either as setting up an abomination in the temple or on the wing that is an outer part of the temple. Here are a few examples of modern translations that follow the Septuagint's lead on this. The Holman Standard says, And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. The NIV says, And at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And the DRB says, And there shall be in the temple the abomination of desolation, and the desolation shall continue even to the consummation and to the end. Finally, we have the phrase, Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. 
You will notice that in this last phrase, the last word, desolate, is not desolator as some of the previous examples have it. Again, it depends on the context. The word itself does not tell us whether the end which will be poured out will be on the desolator or the desolate. I would suggest that if we consider the meaning of the phrase abomination of desolation, we can see that the abomination causes the temple to be desolate, in other words, to be abandoned, with no sacrifices occurring in it. If this is correct, then it would follow that the consummation would here be the destruction of the temple that the Antichrist uses. I believe that this destruction would be in view in Revelation 18. See my study on the destruction of Mystery Babylon. Calendar Issues Before I close this chapter, I would like to talk in a general sense about the methodology used to calculate the years of this prophecy to arrive at the dates that we did. The calculations are very in-depth, and it would require a lot more time to explain it all here, but I think it's very important to do if one wants to be sure that they have arrived at the right date. For all the specific details, I will refer you to Charles Cooper's book, God's Elect in the Great Tribulation, an exposition of Matthew 24, 1-31, and Daniel 9. Just as in Sir Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince, the 360-day year was used in the calculations of this timeline. This was done not only because the Jewish calendar has 360-day years, minus the intercalary months added by the high priests, it also seems clear from several passages that the Bible considers a 360-day year to be the ideal year, which we see by comparing Genesis 7:11 and verse 24, which refer to Noah after the flood. If one were to see these passages literally, then years were exactly 360 days back in Noah's day, with no intercalary months. This, along with the fact that when referring to future prophecy, particularly the abomination of desolation and other events surrounding the three-and-a-half-year period, because of the many different ways this time is referred to, i.e. 42 months, 1,260 days, middle of the week, etc., we know that a 360-day year was intended to be used there. There are a number of reasons that we can speculate why prophecy is expected to be counted using 360-day years, one of which being that because the Hebrew calendar was already 360 days long, but required an active high priest to calculate the intercalary months, something that would have been impossible after 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, that the intercalary month system was stopped as well. I personally tend to look at the 360-day year as a perfect year. 12 30-day months would mean that the Earth makes a perfect circle around the Sun which is not implausible to assume that it used to be that way. Chuck Missler cites the fact that all ancient calendars used a 360-day year. He says, quote, All early calendars appear to be based on a 360-day calendar. The Assyrians, Chaldeans, Egyptians, Hebrews, Persians, Greeks, Phoenicians, Chinese, Mayans, Hindus, Carthaginians, Etruscans, Teutons, all had calendars based on a 360-day year, typically 12 30-day months. Then, he says that about the same time in history, that is, 701 B.C., they all changed, trying to adjust their calendars in various ways to make up for the fact that they no longer were accurate. He attributes this to a near pass of Mars with Earth in 701 B.C. He cites studies which suggest that the two planets used to have orbital resonance with one another, which was disturbed after the event, resulting in a slight change in the length of time it takes the Earth to revolve around the Sun, thereby forcing everyone to change their calendars to keep up with the seasons. Cooper, on the other hand, calls the 360-day system the, quote, modified Egyptian calendar, and he has his own reasons about why it was used by scripture. 
reasons which are also very compelling, and the two ideas are not mutually exclusive. Another item that's important about the calculation of this time is that there is a major problem with secular history's version of the length of the Persian Empire. This and a few other issues are explained in detail by Mr. Cooper in his book and are important reading if one wants to look under the hood, so to speak, of the theory I presented here in order to check and see if it is indeed accurate.